Well, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I was really moved by uh, by 46 years of sobriety and 10 hours of sobriety and, and all the miracles in between. Just uh, may take me a little while to get over that. I, I'm so filled by this whole this whole conference um, with uh, you know seeing some old friends, Pat and and, uh, and Liz and, and Barney and and meeting so many new friends. Uh, uh, my wife Sherry and I would like to really thank you for for having us out here and for for um, just being so kind and and uh, being such good hosts to us. It's had the nicest time. I haven't uh, been to San Diego in 15 years, and and we both changed a lot in 15 years. Uh, and it's just really great to be here. Um, I um, bring a greeting from the little group of Alcoholics Anonymous. The little group meets on Monday nights in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and we're a step study group, and we're a little smaller than this, and um, if, you, uh, if you're over in Fayetteville, North Carolina on Monday night, please come to our group. We think we have a wonderful group. It may not be the best, but it's a really good one. Um, I, uh, we got in here Thursday. It was sort of a lot of fun. Uh, we got here so that we could uh, play golf, and, uh, and I played golf. I... Uh, before we started, I was on Al's team and Jim, and, and uh, before we got started, we got our heads together, and we decided that the truly humble thing to do would be to uh, not win. And uh, and uh, so that's what we did. Uh, we could have won if we wanted to, but uh, and Jim came up to me before the before I talked, and he said. Uh, Jim, would you stand up, please, so everybody can see? Yeah, here's our spiritual leader out there. Thank you. You can sit down there. And uh, he came up to me before, just before I got up here, and he said, uh, he said, you're going to tell the same story that you told out on a golf course. I'm going to go to sleep. I said, hell, Jim, you were asleep on a golf course. So. Good to be here. It really is. Uh, I'd like to wish you all a happy Easter and a happy Passover and happy Ramadan. Uh, I know that, uh, that in this program, uh, we, uh, worship God as we understand Him, and, and I think that's one of the great messages that, that Alcoholics Anonymous has brought to the world. Truly great to be here. If you're kind of new here, um, basically what we do is we share a little bit about, uh, what I was like, what happened, and, and what I'm like now, and that's what I'm gonna try to do. I, uh, I'm in no particular hurry. Our plane leaves at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, so, uh, no no hurry at all. Uh, I uh, I frequently like to start out by uh, by talking a little bit about the family I grew up in. Uh, I, I grew up in a nice family, and I didn't know that then. You see, because what I do is suffer from a spiritual illness, uh, illness of alcoholism, and we're told in all of our literature that it's a spiritual illness, and indeed it was so in my case. And I believe it's spiritual because because I was blind and deaf. Uh, I couldn't see or hear the incredible amount of love that surrounded me my entire life. And yet it was always there, and I couldn't see it. You see, when I, when I looked at things and I heard things, I saw poverty and I saw ugliness, and, and, and I heard things that, that weren't there. I heard, uh, uh, complaints, and, and, uh, and I heard how bad things were, and, and that isn't what was being said where I grew up. Uh, I'm Irish. Um, I'm, uh, uh, from a family of 11 children. I won't uh, tell you what church I went to. You're going to have to guess that on your own. Uh, uh, it's something to do with bingo. Uh, had a mother and a father uh, and 10 brothers and sisters. And, uh, and we did a lot of dumb things. Uh, I've I thought a lot about this in the last few years. So. We did a lot of really dumb things as a family. We were what I thought was poor because we didn't have any money and didn't have many material things. And so we did dumb things like pray together and read together and just spend time together. And we play games and, and things like that. Uh, but you see, when you're spiritually ill, uh, you don't see that as beautiful. And so that was the story of my life. I, I was this guy who was surrounded by incredible wealth and thought he was poor. I was surrounded by incredible love and thought that I was supposed to move on. And we were having uh, lunch here yesterday, and, and uh, Pat asked me, and I, it was it sort of threw me. We were talking about nice places to visit, and this is certainly one of them. 
And she said to me, what's your favorite place? And, and I thought for just a few minutes, and, and I realized that the answer surprised me. My favorite place is home. And, uh, and that's a miracle. Uh, if, if I could be any place in the world, if it were my choice, and, and I'm awful glad to be here now, but given most days where I'd like to be is, is in our little house with my wife and going to my home group and working with the guys I sponsor and talking to the guys who sponsors me. And that's a miracle because when you're spiritually ill, you're supposed to think the answer is somewhere out there. It's just beyond the next turn or just over the next hill. And I must tell you right now, as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous and you, I'm a truly complete human being. And I have you to thank for that. I had my first drink. Uh, I think first drinks are important. Very few people ever get to Alcoholics Anonymous if they don't have a first drink. So I think they're very important. And, and, and the other thing I've discovered is that most people in Alcoholics Anonymous remember their first drink. And I remember mine. I remember it like it was yesterday, but it was a long time ago. I had it with two very important people in my life, my father and my brother, Denny. Dumb Denny was, uh, Dumb Denny is a year younger than I am. A lot of, a lot of people have, uh, brothers like Denny or sisters like Denny and, uh, they're not very much fun to be around. They're, uh, they're strange people. And, uh, Denny was like that. And, and my father, my mother was out and my father was watching us. We were sitting around the kitchen table playing little games and things like we used to do. And, and there was rarely ever any alcohol in our house because both of my parents had parents who had drinking problems and, uh, so there's really alcohol around, but there was some beer in the refrigerator. And, um, and I grew up in a small town on the Ohio River, just, uh, just south of Pittsburgh, and, and, uh, where the steel mills and the coal mines and the rivers and all that thing, all those things are. And, and my father went to the refrigerator and he got out three Iron City beers. And, um, I was five and Dumb Denny was four. And, uh, and he got out three, a couple of jelly glasses, you know the kind with little cartoon characters on it, remember those? And mine had Superman on it, I don't know if that's significant, uh, psychologists would probably think so, but, uh, but my father opened the beers and gave us each a beer and he took one, and he sat there and kind of smiled to see what was going to happen, you know? Well, I really disappointed him, because in my case nothing happened, I drank the beer and it was alright, uh, and, uh, but then then he was... Wasn't hearing it. Dumb Denny was, uh, sort of slid down out of the chair and he was, he was rolling around under the table singing Mary Had a Little Lamb and other drinking songs and, and my father immediately panicked and, uh, he, he wrestled old Denny out of his clothes and put him in the jam and he had a kind with the feet and the trap door and, and, uh, and I got ready for bed and, uh, and he took Denny upstairs to put him in his little crib and, and I went upstairs and Denny and I were sleeping in the same room and, uh, and my father said, please, don't tell your mother about this. Whatever you do, don't say a thing to your mother. And I was always easy to get along with because I was a nice little kid, but old Denny wasn't hearing it. He was singing and carrying on and laughing. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. Old Denny stood up in the crib and urinated on the floor. I'll never forget that, yeah? I remember laying over there watching this disgusting display. And I was thinking, you know... There's a kid who's powerless over alcohol and whose life has become unmanageable. And you know, the strangest thing happened to Denny. Uh, he just never really made it. Uh, you know, he was sort of, was sort of embarrassed about Denny. Uh, he just got strange. He, he grew up and, uh, well let me tell you some of the stuff he did. He, he, uh, he went to one college. He had one major, and he graduated on time, and he went to one graduate school. He had a lot of job offers, and he looked around, and he picked one company, and he's been with that company for 20 years now as a, a vice president of a large international corporation. You know, the strangest thing of all is he married one woman. Now, how you see, here's a guy who had the world in the palm of his hand when he was four years old. And he just let it go, you know. And, you know, it wasn't that easy for me. I was 22 years old before I urinated on a bedroom floor. Just, uh, uh, just never made it. Uh, 
Then we'd be down a couple of weeks. We'd get together and play golf. Uh, we live on this nice little golf course in North Carolina near Pinehurst. And, and uh, so Denny comes down and uh, he's just a strange guy. Uh, but, you know, he loves Alcoholics Anonymous. He really does. He was telling me uh, uh, not long ago that, uh, that the most exciting people he's ever met in his life are members of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I think it's because we've lived out potential that Denny and people like that had and they just never realized. And uh, so he'll be down, and, and, and we'll play golf, and, and we'll really enjoy one another's company. And, uh, you know, I owe Denny an amends uh, uh, after I got sober, and I was sober like five or six years. You know, growing up, Denny and I were real close. Uh, he played shortstop, and I played second base, and we had a great double play combination. And we spent a lot of time sharing and talking to one another, and then uh, and then I went away, and I got drunk. and. Uh, and I never came back. I'd show up physically, but, but I was never ever a part of anything that my family did again. Because I had a spiritual illness, and it's called alcoholism, and, uh, and my job was to escape. My job was to get away and to not look back and to blame them for the way I was. You know, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and, uh, and I was sober for just a few months, and, uh, and I was one of these people who belonged to the Problem of the Month Club, and, uh, and, uh, and I'd sit around with these other people and we'd figure out the problem of the month and, uh, you know, whether we were from a, a dysfunctional family or, uh, you know, mother had a square nipple or I, I'd put on a party chair backwards or whatever the reason was that I was the way I was. And, uh, and, and my sponsor watched this for a little while and he called me aside and he said, you know, Keith, he said, uh, I want you to stop hanging with those losers. And I said, what losers? He said, those guys you're hanging around with. And I said, well, what makes you think they're losers? And he said, well, they don't like anything or anybody. He said, all they do is sit around and find fault with everything. And I said, yeah, they're deep thinkers like me. And and, uh, and he said, but I don't want you hanging with them. And I said, well, that's awfully judgmental. He said, that's right. He said, one of us has got to make a judgment, and you're not capable of it. So he said, I want you to stop hanging with those losers. And I said, well, how do I know the winners? And he said, in your case, it's simple. You won't like them. He said, I want you to hang with the people you don't like and stay away from the people you like. And uh, that's worked for me. Uh, I played golf with a few uh, winners uh, Thursday. Um, I... Uh, the same old, old timer pulled me aside one time and, and he said to me, he said, uh, he said, you know, he said, I'd like you to do something. And I said, what's that? Anything. I said, I'll do anything. And he said, I want you to borrow lipstick from one of the girls in the program. He said, I don't want you to do anything else with the girls in the program. So I want you to borrow lipstick from one of the girls in the program and I want you to go home and write on the mirror, keep you along. And I said, oh, well, you, you don't understand. See, I can't do that because, see, my problem is I have a poor self-image and I need to be affirmed. And he said, Keith, I want you to borrow some lipstick. I said, all right, all right. So I, I, I went to a five and dime and I bought some lipstick. I didn't want to, uh, borrow, owe anything to anybody, especially a woman. So, so I bought a tube of lipstick and I went home and I wrote on my mirror, Keith, you along. And I was disgusted and I threw that, what was left of that toothpaste in the trash can and I, I went off and I went to bed and, and I had a normal night, you know, 90 days. Remember 90 days? I was tossing and turning and my mind kept spinning and spinning and, and I was figuring out all those people on my hit list and, and, uh, and everything. And, and, you know, and I'd slept fitfully for a few hours. And then when it was time to wake up, I was tired. And, 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 and as soon as I opened my eyes, depression jumped on me. And, uh, and I started that normal stuff that I did every morning. You know, well, Keith, you're not going to make it. Uh, today you're going to go to the hospital and they're going to find out you don't know how to do the job you've had for six years. Uh, you know, you're never ever going to have a relationship. Uh, so what difference does it make you impotent? Uh, uh, you know, just a normal morning. And, uh, and I went out in, the, out in the kitchen and I started the coffee. And, you know, I just wanted to cry. And, and, and then I walked in the bathroom and I looked under me and she keeps you along. I said, well, thank God. If I'm right, I'm in a hell of a lot of trouble. And, and so you see the spiritual illness is being right. Needing to be right to me is a spiritual illness. And, and I was just frightened little kid who uh who had something lived under his bed and uh 
And, um, you know, at night, if you, you'd press your little ear against the mattress, you could hear it moving around down there. And, and, uh, and I knew what it was there for. Uh, it was waiting for me to dangle my little legs over the side of the bed. And that's history. And, uh, I knew that. And, uh, but I didn't tell anybody. And, um, so every night I just sort of lay in bed and think about that thing under the bed. And, uh, and, uh, one night I had too much Kool-Aid. And, uh, and I had to make a big decision. You know, people who spiritually ill have big decisions to make. And, uh, and I had to decide whether I wanted to wet the bed and hear that for a week or take a chance on getting grabbed by that thing under my bed and never being heard from again for as long as I lived. And, uh, and I knew it was down there. And I knew if it got me that, that I'd never be heard from again because I used to listen. When I was a little kid, I had a horrible speech impediment. I didn't talk much, so I listened. And I listened to a lot of little kids, and I never met one that that thing got who came back. And so I knew that if it got me, I was a goner. And that's the way I live my life, with these kinds of secrets like this. And just knowing that my time was short and I'd have to move on. And I also got the idea that you're only allowed to be wrong so many times. And and my job was to be right. I had to be right. If I was wrong, I was nobody. If I was wrong, I had to pack up and leave. And um, and, and it wasn't. And I had this other idea too, and that is that that everybody in the world knew what was going on but me. You ever think like that? It's like God put everybody in a room like this, and He said, "All right, I'm going to run through this one time." He said, "I'm going to." So I'm going to tell all the boys about being boys, I'm going to tell the girls about being girls, and I'm going to tell you what it's like to grow up and to be a real man and to mature and everything. And I was in the bathroom. And everybody in the world understood what was going on except me. And my job was to drift through life to guess at stuff. And if I embarrassed myself or you found out I didn't know anything, I had to move on. I always had to move on. And that's what a spiritual illness is. A spiritual illness is needing to move on. When I was uh, 17 years old and I graduated from high school and I had not the foggiest notion of what to do with my life. And uh, so I took one of my very first inventories. Just talking to Ed about this. Um, I, I took my shirt off and I stood in front of the mirror and I, I really took a good look at myself. And, and I was 5 feet 1 inches tall and I weighed 113 pounds. And I was just a born killer. So, um, so I went off and joined the Marine Corps. And... Uh, and I'll never forget that. My mother was crying, and uh, she's saying, that he'll die. They'll kill him. They'll kill him. And, and, uh, and my father said, I don't worry. They'll send him back. And uh, that was a discussion that was going on at my house. And, and early that morning, they took me over and put me on a bus, and, and I left home. And uh, I went 65 miles to Pittsburgh, and that's the second furthest trip I'd ever made in my life. I went to Cleveland once, but the game was rained out. And... Uh, and I was this frightened little kid who was just terrified, who knew nothing about the world and thought he was supposed to. You know, I have a, a daughter, Kelly, who's a senior at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and a daughter, Kimberly, who's a junior at Auburn University in, in Alabama. And, and from the time I got sober, I, I said to them, look, you're not supposed to know. You're not supposed to know. You know, life's about learning. It's not about knowing. And the only thing, the only information that's of value is what you learn when you put on your retrospectoscope and you look back. Because that's the only value, that's the only information that's of any value. You know, you, you might know that God loves you, but that doesn't matter until you know he loves you. You know, I went and got a degree in theology because I wanted to find out something about God. Because I figured somehow, if I learned enough about God, I would believe it. But you know, I didn't learn anything about God till the first time you shook my hand and you looked me in the eye when I walked into my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's when I began to learn something about the love of God. I think theology is wonderful and I certainly enjoyed it and I enjoyed philosophy and I enjoyed all that business. But you know, I never knew anything about the love of God until I met you. Now, I should have known. I'm surrounded by people who love God and who serve God my whole life. My mother is one of the most spiritual human beings I know, as is my father. My father's one of those silent prayers, and my mother's one of those servers. In my whole life, I watched them. So my father would say, you know, with no money, no food, no nothing, my father's response was, well, we'll pray. And there was always enough money, and somehow there was always enough food. 
And then I go into steel strikes and things like that. Uh, I used to watch my parents and, and, and we would all get together. The neighbors would all get together and share food and, uh, and I never understood those things at that time. But you know, they, they'd sit all the children down and, and we'd all eat. And then the adults would sit down and eat. And, and I was, you know, I was, uh, in my teens and began to watch television before I knew that most families sat down and ate together. Because our families made sure there was enough food for the kids before they ate. And I didn't know that that was love, you see. I didn't know that that was part of what God was all about. So I went off to some university to learn it. I went and stayed in a theologian, a Jesuit theologian for a couple of years to learn this stuff. But none of it mattered till I knew you. You know, that day when I went to Pittsburgh and, and uh, it was a bad year and they took anybody who came and, um, and there were four of us were sworn in that day. Myself from down in Ohio and these three guys from Pittsburgh. And they, they were all had a big picture. They were big guys and had a big picture and they understood what was going on. And, and so after we were sworn in, we had eight hours before, before, uh, we were supposed to leave town to go to Paris Island, South Carolina. And I knew nothing about the Marine Corps. The only thing I knew was they took people down to Paris Island, South Carolina to drown them. It's the only thing I knew about the Marine Corps. And, and, and so I followed these guys out and we went to a bar. And, uh, for the very first time I drank. Now I had a little drink at home from time to time, but nothing, nothing like I ever wanted. And that night my life changed. And anybody who is alcoholic knows precisely what I mean. I went into this bar, and I don't know if you've ever been in a bar in Pittsburgh, but if you have, I tell you, it's a frightening thing. It really is. It's filled with real men. You know, they're kind of with tattoos, and they spit on the floor. You know, they need all those words. And, um, and all of them had a woman with them. They're real women. Uh, real women hang around with real men, and guys like me get what's left. And, uh, and I went in, and uh, we sat down, and the bartender came over. He's a real man. He said, what do you want? And I thought, oh my God, a quiz. I, I lived my life with this horrible fear that at any time somebody was going to say, take out a blank sheet of paper and put your name in the upper left-hand corner. And they were going to ask me all those questions I hadn't studied the night before. And uh, But I immediately looked at these other guys and they ordered a beer, so I ordered a beer. And then a real man came back and he said, what do you want? And they said, we have another one. I said, me too. And then he came back and we ordered another one. And then it happened. That thing that happens only for alcoholics. The thing that, that, that people, no matter how much they love us, they can't understand. That magic that happens. Somewhere between the second and third drink, my entire existence changed. As entirely, irrevocably, irrevocably, they stay in with the act, um, changed. Just changed. And I remember I, I stood up. I didn't even mean to stand up, but, but I know now I couldn't have kept from standing up. And, and I looked down and the floor was six feet four inches below me. And I looked out here and my right shoulder was out to here and my left shoulder was out to here and the muscles were rippling through my body. And I felt strength like I'd never known before. And the, but the amazing thing was that mind that had been filled with fear and terror and doubt and questions like boom was perfectly clear. I'll never forget it. I, and I remember saying, aha, of course, it's so simple. Why didn't I see it before? And then I looked up and my heart broke. This place was filled with a bunch of pathetic, sniveling little men. And they all had women with them who were looking at me with those hungry eyes. You know how they do. They were saying, I'd do anything if I could have a man like this. And, and uh, i never forget it. I, I, I meant to take a step, and I stumbled. And the one guy said, what's the matter? I said, I don't know, but I think I just tipped over an invisible line. And, uh, and I sincerely believe that, you know, Liz said she didn't know where her line was. I sincerely believe that that was the day that I, that I became an alcoholic. Now, now, I know my sponsor, Tom, and I debate this a lot. Because Tom says, you know, there's a time at which you could have quit drinking. And I said, that's true, Tom, but who the hell would have wanted to? I never felt that good or that whole or that complete in my entire life. 
And only a fool would have quit drinking. To quit drinking then would have qualified me for a wraparound sport coat. Because I would have known, I would have known that the solution was just two and a half drinks away. And you know, I spent the rest of that night going from table to table, filling these poor lost people in. They had questions about everything, about what it's like to grow up, what it's like to be a real man, about women. They had questions about everything. And I did the best I could to fill them in. I just filled them in the best I could. And, and, and all of a sudden, it's nearly midnight, and it's time to leave. And, and I told them, I said, I have to go. I've got to go and defend our nation. And, uh, and, and it seems to me that they were crying when I left. And, and I somehow imagined there's a little plaque in a bar in Pittsburgh that said I passed that way one evening. And, and, and I was launched into my Marine Corps career. And, and, uh, and I uh, woke up the next morning. And, and the Marine Corps sent us on these Pullman coaches, you know. And I'd never been on a train before, except I jumped a few freight, freight trains as a kid. But, but I'm on this Pullman coach. And, and I woke up on the floor of this coach. And someone had wet the floor that I was sleeping on. And, uh, and I was in Washington, D.C., and I was 300 miles from home. And, uh, and my life, uh, had come to an end because I was five feet one inches tall and I weighed 113 pounds and I was terrified again. And these guys said to me, they said, look, we're going to go over and have a few drinks. You want to join us? And, uh, and I said, well, how do I know? I'm from out of town. And, and so I followed them over there and the same thing happened. And that night, I fell off the train in Yamasee, South Carolina. Um, Yamas is where they pick you up to take you to Paris Island. And, and, and strangest thing, I, someone moved the bottom step and I fell across the railroad tracks and a very rude man, um, began to hurl obscenities at me and the other young men who had gone down there to die for our country. And I, and I got up and I tried to explain to this Cretan, uh, that he'd probably do a lot better if he treated us nice, um, but he never did buy it. But what I did learn was I could do a lot of push-ups drunk. I, I did learn that. I could, and, and thus I went into my Marine Corps career. And I must say I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I always said next to the nuns it was easy. And, uh, and, and I, I really took to it. And I won all kinds of awards off of Paris Island. And I was going to spend the rest of my life in the Marine Corps. And you know, four years later I got out. And I got out because I had violated every principle that I could violate in the Marine Corps. I drank on duty. I led patrols in combat in a blackout. I violated every principle, and it was something very, very special to me. And I ruined it because I was spiritually ill. And what spiritual illness is to me is guaranteeing that this time next year I'd hate myself and loathe myself more than I do this time this year. Somebody said to me one time, why do so many alcoholics commit suicide? And my response was, because we're human beings, only more so. And we can only stand to violate ourselves to a certain degree. And then it's death or it's sobriety. And I think that's why. And you know, and I went on for the next eight years, and I just did what I'd done the first four years. I just violated every principle that I ever wanted to become involved in. And I ended up ended up in, uh, like so many of us, as Bill Wilson talks about, with scientific training. And I ended up working in a scientific laboratory at Georgetown University. And, and, uh, and I ended up doing all the things you do to violate those principles. I ended up faking data because I was drunk and didn't get in and do the experiments the way I was supposed to do them. And I ended up violating every principle that was involved with research. And then I was married, and I ended up violating every principle that was involved in the sanctity of, in the sacrament of marriage. And, and I had two children, and I ended up violating every value and every principle that a person who's a father. And, you know, I had the example of my father, who just loved us and worked hard, spent every day with us we'd spend with him. And I was drunken out. I was drunken out when the kids were born. I was drunken out when they nearly died. I was drunk when my wife's father died and I was gone. I just violated every principle there was and then I moved on. And then one day the string ran out. I, you know, we all know how to drink and we all know how to get very, very sick. And one day the string ran out. And for me it ran out on May the 13th, 1973. 
I was living in a dive on the Skid Row section of Washington, D.C. And I'd been living there about six months since my wife threw me out. She, uh, she said to me one day, she said, uh, I have to let you go. You know, you're, you're, you're drinking and falling asleep with cigarettes and I'm at work and the kids are, Kelly and Kimberly were just infants and she said, all I can think about is the place burning down with you and she said, I just can't live like this. And you know, and I knew the spring was out too and, and, uh, I'd already left Kelly in a crib because I needed a drink and I ran to the liquor store and, and I'd already sat around at night half drunk thinking about wouldn't it be nice if, if the three of them would die in an automobile accident then I wouldn't have all these responsibilities that made me drink this way. And so that ended up violating absolutely everything that had any value to me at all. And then I just went to where was next and next to me was Skid Row. And you know, and even there I had all that phony nonsense, that pride that I carry in here. And, um, you know, I used to go up to Ontario Liquor Store on Columbia Road in Washington, D.C., and I used to have a barrel, and they'd fill this barrel with fifths of booze, and there were, uh, there were three fifths for $10. It was the good stuff. And um, and I'd go up there, and, you know, I'd put on a tie or an ascot and a sport coat, and I'd go up and I'd stand around that barrel you know, and I'd pick it up and I'd look at it and I'd do this and I'd do that. And there was another gentleman uh, there at the barrel with me one day, and I could tell he was a gentleman because he had a corduroy sport coat with patches on the elbows, and I knew he was a gentleman. And and uh, and so I turned to the bar, the the uh, shopkeeper, and I said to him, I said, "Pardon me, sir, is this a pretty good vodka?" You know what he said to me? He said, "What the hell do you care? I'll get you where you need to go." And um, so I turned to this gentleman next to me, and I said, obviously, the gentleman's having a bad day. He said, obviously. So so I bought six fifths and went home. And uh, and that's the way it was. I mean, I ended up drinking in bootleg joints on 14th Street, uh, just all the stuff you have to do to, to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and one day, May the 13th, 1973, I woke up, and, and it was just time to die. And, you know, it wasn't a big thing. Uh, it was really strange to me. I hurt so bad that I couldn't stand to hurt like that anymore. And I hadn't seen my children, and I wasn't permitted to see my children, and, and I hadn't been to work in I don't know how long, and I wasn't answering the telephone, and I wasn't opening any mail. And, and the next thing to do was to die. And I remember walking in that bathroom, and I began to, uh, to uh, I had all these pills. And I began to collect them so I could take them all so I could die. And uh, and something happened to me. Uh, it was something like the thing that happened in 1961 when I got drunk for the first time. I just had a clear thought. Now, that's not a big thing to, to most people. But when you're as foggy as I had been for so long, the clear thought was almost miraculous. And I thought, I remember thinking to myself, well, you're 30, you're 29, at least we'll be over. And I remember the thought came to me, you know, when you're 29, it's not supposed to be over, it's supposed to be starting. And I remember what a peculiar thought that was, but it wasn't just a thought, it was the, it rang through with incredible clarity. And I now know that it was God, but, but I wasn't giving God any credit then, right? I was giving God all the blame for all of it. And, uh, and, and, and I remember that my ex-wife had given me two telephone numbers. One was Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know it then, I didn't know AA existed. And one was to a treatment center, and she said, here are a couple numbers, and if you ever decide to do anything to yourself, maybe these people can help you. God knows I can't. And I lost one of the numbers, and I called the other one. And for me, I needed the treatment center. And uh, and I remember I, I, I made that call, and if you're kind of new, Stacy or, or anybody else who's kind of beginning this journey, please spend some time tonight and look and see what it is that God's given you that's special. I, I think God gives each and every one of us something special to carry into this journey. And I'll share with you the special piece of information he gave me. Uh, I called this place, and the lady uh, could tell that I was really gone. And and and, uh, and I said, I think I'm going to, if you can't help me, I think I'm going to die. And she said, well, honey, give me your phone number, and I'll call you back. And, and I know now that she wanted to get my number because she knew who, how suicidal I was. And uh, so I, I, I gave her the number, and, and I, I hung up the phone, and I sat down, and I began to sob. And, and the phone rang, and I got up, and, and she said, uh, can you come here Wednesday? And I said, yeah. And she told me where it was, and it was 30 miles out of town. And, and I hung the phone up, 
And I looked over and there was a fifth of scotch on the draining board. And God gave me that special gift. I knew that if I took one drink of alcohol, I'd die. But knowing that would never keep me from taking it. You know, I had long since tried to scare myself into drinking less. I tried to scare myself into getting sober. I used to go to autopsies. I was at a teaching hospital, and I used to post autopsies, you know, like coming attractions. And um, and and if they posted someone who was uh, who had died of chronic acute alcoholism, I'd go try to watch the autopsy. And I could never watch much of those things. They're awful. And, and I'd watch it for a little while, and then I'd run to Clyde to Chadwick's or the 1789 or someplace, and I'd say, Clyde, you better give me a double. You'll never guess what I just saw. And, and then he'd say, we always get a double. I said, well, you better make it a triple. And then he'd give me a triple martini, and I'd sit there, and I'd have to hold it with two hands. It's just a horrible sight. And uh, and the guy sitting at the bar would say, what's the matter? You look like you've seen a ghost. And I said, you'll never guess what I just saw. I saw a guy's brain that's half the normal size. And had a liver look like a lump of coal. I'm telling you, it's awful. And the guy said, why? I said, because he drank too much. And they said, God, that's awful. We knew you better give us a triple, too. And then, then we'd sit there and we'd discuss how could people do this to themselves. What's the matter? Have they no dignity and self-respect and that sort of thing? And so I could never scare myself sober. But this was different. I knew if I took a drink, I'd die. And that would never, ever keep me from taking it. You know, this may have been 18 years since that day. And you know, if I take a drink, I'll die. But knowing that will never, ever keep me from taking it. The difference between being alive and being dead is you. That's it. That's the difference. Because that's what wasn't in my life before. I, I'll tell you, if you kind of knew, I'll tell you how I picture that first step. Okay? I'm an alcoholic. Okay? I have a disease that guarantees I must drink again. I must. Because that's what the disease says. Okay? And I'll tell you how I see it. Okay? My last thing's important. I mean, we all keep track of our sobriety dates, and like you, 46 magnificent years of sobriety. And, and that's an important date for me, my, my sobriety date. But that's not the drink that's important to me. The drink that's important is the one you talked about that's out ahead of me. Okay? It's a drink I must take. If I ever catch up to that drink, I'll take it. Because you see, I'm powerless over alcohol. And my life's become unmanageable. And so my job, one day at a time, is to do what I need to do to push that drink out ahead of me. And to push it out ahead of me. And you know, over the years, I don't guess I'm different than most other drunks. Over the years, I get that thing so far ahead of me that I get comfortable. And I'll say, hey, piece of cake. Piece of cake. You're probably going to too many meetings. You need some balance in your life. You know? And enough of these, these people calling you at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're sponsoring all these sickos. Why do you get the sickos? And everybody else gets the sponsor the well ones. And, uh, you know, my sponsor's getting a little old and feeble. And, um, you know, and I just sort of start to change a little bit. And before you know it, I'm anxious again. And, and uh, the world's filled with a bunch of idiots. And uh, they're all getting my lane. And, uh... Nobody understands me, and uh, God's slow, awful slow. Uh, and I realize what I'm doing is, you see, I'm gaining on that drink. I'm gaining on that drink. And let me tell you, if I ever get in the same day, in the same hour as that drink, I'm a dead man. Because if I take one drink, I'm going to die. And knowing that will never, ever keep me from taking it. So you see, you're the difference between me living in me dying. You know, yesterday I wandered up to St. Joseph's Cathedral and went to confession, and tonight we're, this evening we're going to go up and go to Mass, and, and I love God, and I love the church I grew up in, and I love all those things. But none of them would be in my life were it not for you. I had all that information before I met you. I knew all about love. I knew all about caring. I knew all about parenting. I knew about God. But none of it meant anything until I met you. And it all began because one day, nearly 18 years ago, God gave me the knowledge that if I took one drink, I'd die, and knowing that would never keep me from taking it. 
And I ran over and I grabbed that nearly full pitch of scotch and I ran over to the sink and I knew I couldn't pour it out. And I threw it in the sink and it broke. And I must tell you, if it had bounced, I wouldn't be here. And three days later or whatever it was, I somehow got in a car and I tried to drive out to that place. And I couldn't go very far. I could only go for about a mile or so. And I began to cry and shake. And I get out and I throw up and I wet my pants. And, and I'm changing my pants outside my car on Route 29 outside of Washington, D.C., wondering what had gone wrong. I had it all figured out and it never worked out the way I figured it. And I didn't know why. And, and I walked into that place and I met my very first recovering alcoholic. There was a nurse named Peggy. She was sober 90 days and she was too sick to let go so they hired her. And she sat across the table from me and she looked me in the eye and took, took my hands in her hands and said to me, sweetheart, you never ever, ever have to drink again. And she said, you know, you're not bad. You've been very sick. And for a brief moment, I believe it. And that evening, they loaded me on a bus, and they took me to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they had catchers at the door. They called them greeters. They really weren't greeters. Like Liz was saying, they were there to keep you from getting out once you got in. And, uh, and they always had to, they always put the weird ones there, you know. Um, the, uh, this one guy's weird, strange guy, strange guy. Uh, he used to, uh, uh, look you in the eye. I'll never forget it. He always looked you in the eye. You know, the obnoxious type. And, uh, and he smiled and shook my hand. He said, you know, Sonny, you keep coming here. You never, ever have to drink again. And I was a shoe man. And, uh, and yet, yet he's looking me in the eye. And every place I looked, his head was there. And, uh, thought he had two heads. And, uh, he took me in a meeting. He turned me over to some old, old woman. Ten days older than dirt. You should have seen this woman. She got me half a cup of coffee and uh, sat down next to me, began to pat me. And so I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous by a two-headed old man and an old pervert. And about halfway through that meeting, that old lady looked at me and her face exploded into this smile and she said, Sonny, you keep coming here, you never have to be alone again. And I just burst into tears because, you see, I never knew that what I was was alone. I never knew that. I never knew that what having a spiritual illness means is that I'm always alone. I couldn't figure that out, you see. There would be nights when I'd get up and, and I'd walk over into the bedroom where little Kelly and little Kimberly were. And you know, I'd sometimes just touch them. I touch kids now. I, I, I just love to touch kids. And, and sometimes I'd just touch them and I'd just stroke their little heads. And I'd know that they couldn't be mine because they were too nice to have anything to do with me. And I didn't know that what that was was being alone. I didn't know that what I suffered from was a spiritual illness called alcoholism. And, and I just hung out with you people. And frankly, I didn't have any place else to go. I was 29 years old and my life had come to an end. I had played out the string. I'm not here because I'm smart. I'm not here because I figured anything out. I'm here because I used everything up. And I was so spiritually ill that I had no place else to go. You were the only ones who would take me. And that's why I'm here. And I was afraid of you. God, I was afraid of you. Because somehow I had a feeling that you would figure me out. And you would know I didn't belong here. And, and I loved you and admired you so much from the very beginning that I would come to meetings early and sit across the street and watch you. And I'd watch you shake hands and I'd watch you hug each other. And I'd wait until 8.30 and it was time for the meeting to start and I'd run over and I'd go inside. And then I'd leave as soon as it was over because I didn't want you to find out how I was. Because I thought if you knew how I was that you wouldn't want me around. And I got a sponsor and I wouldn't tell him the truth about me because I thought he wouldn't want to sponsor a guy like me who was impotent, who lied and cheated and stole and did all those things. And and I couldn't understand why it was that I felt outside of you. And you know, I understood none of the spiritual principles of life. I was going to a meeting one time, and, and i never forget this. I was on Connecticut Avenue, Woodley Place, and, and I stopped at a light and I looked over and Art P was in the car next to me. And Art had five guys in his car, and I was in my car all alone. And I remember thinking, poor Art, 
He can't even go places by himself. And, and I got to the meeting, and, and, and Art came out to me, and he said, he said, I noticed that uh, you're in the car all by yourself. And, and I said, yeah, I noticed you had a bunch of people with you, Art. And, uh, and he said, you know, there are a lot of people in AA who need rides to meetings. And he said, why don't you start giving some folks some rides? And I thought that was a novel idea. And, and I began giving people rides to meetings. You know, this business of being impotent, with this many men here, there are a lot of sufferers. And uh, two things that being impotent will do for you. It'll ruin your sex life. It'll almost certainly get you an Al-Anon. Just kidding. Just kidding. You know, this was a big secret I had, and and, uh, and this was really bothering me. And uh, I was one of those guys who, I always had this feeling that for every problem, there's one answer. I don't think anybody, ever, anybody else ever had this, but I figure there's one problem, there's one answer. If you don't get the right answer, you died. A big hand came down, poured a drink in your mouth, and you expired. So my job was to always try to find the answer. And I used to go to this old fella. He always had the answers. And I'd run in, I'd give him this, this problem. If, if you kind of knew, no offense you, but you see all the folks who are standing up last? You're old timers. And... and let me share with you about old timers, okay? If you don't mind a suggestion, um, kind of stay away from them. Uh, they're not right. Uh, they're really not. They're, uh, I don't know, it's too much smoke or coffee or something, but, uh, they're not right. And they'll tell you that they come here to meetings because they need to, and that's just not true. Uh, they come here to laugh at your problems. If you don't believe that, find one of them and tell them a problem. I can guarantee the first thing they'll do is laugh and, uh, sing. And that's the only enjoyment they get out of life anymore, uh. And, uh, and I had an old timer like that and I went up and I was human and hawing and trying to figure out how I'm going to tell him that I was impotent. And finally he said, what the hell is the problem? I said, I'm impotent. He said, ah! <laughs> he said, uh, uh, Hey, he said, a lot of us had that problem. He said, uh, yeah, it'll get better. And I said, um, when? <laughs> and he said, what, you got a full calendar? Ha <laughs> ha! You know. I said, well, you know, when? And he said, I don't know, a couple of years. I said, couple of years? And, uh, you know, that's the thing about old timers. Something happens, they lose track of time. Uh, and so I went to my sponsor, and my sponsor hadn't been sober all that long, so I told him, and he just smiled. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, Dan, I said, this is a big problem. He said, yeah, he said, I, I know. He said, he said, a lot of us have dealt with that problem. And I said, uh, Dan, uh, how long? And he said, well, I said, it's different times for different people. He said, uh, but let's look at it another way. And I said, you know, Dan is, not too many ways you can look at, uh, I said, that's really one of those sort of either or situations, and, uh, he said, well, let's, let's look at it another way. He said, uh, you have a lot of problems, don't you? I said, I sure do. He said, every time we're at the meeting, there's a problem, you got it. I said, you know, that's the strangest thing. And he said, so in reality, you have hundreds of problems. I said, thousands. He said, thousands. Okay, thousands of problems. He said, now this is just one of them. I said, it's a big one. He said, granted, but it's just one. And I said, yeah. He said, now tell me, how many problems do you have that are going to be as much fun to work on as this one? And I said, you know, Dan, I never really looked at it that way before. So what sponsors do, you see, is, is sponsors take tragedy and put a smile on it. And But I had to get an answer for everything. And I remember I went to this old timer again, and I told him another problem. He had a good laugh and told me that he didn't know the answer to it. And I can't remember what the problem was, but it was the biggest problem that happened in 1973. And uh, and he told me that uh, that there was a fellow down in downtown Washington, D.C., who was sober a long, long time, and he could help me with that problem. So I went down to the Metropolis Club, which was then in a condemned building by the Trailways bus station, and I... I asked for this guy, and he was out on a 12-step call, and I said, i got to talk to him. I said, i got about two hours to live. And they said, 
really back for the meeting, so just have a seat. So I sat down, and in he came, and he was driving a new drunk with him, and I ran over to him. I said, i got to talk to you. Don sent me. i got a problem. And he said, well, we'll talk after the meeting. I said, I may not be alive after the meeting. He said, you sit next to me. We'll live. I said, okay. So, and so I sat next to him. The meeting was over, and he turned to me. And I'll never forget, he was a black man and had the kindest face and had white hair. And he said to me, he said, now, what's the problem, boy? And I told him the problem. And he remember he looked at me and his eyes were so sad and he shook his head. He said, Sonny said, I'd like to help you, but I don't know the answer to that problem. And I said, you are my last hope. And he said, well, I'm sorry. And he said, but let me give you a suggestion. I said, anything. He said, don't drink even if your ass falls off. And you were driving home thinking, that's the most profound thing. I ever heard in my life. And you see, see what I discovered is that Alcoholics Anonymous isn't about answers. It's about solutions. And, and if you stay here, and if you work the steps, and if you go to meetings, and if you get a good sponsor, if you say yes to the things you're asked to do, solutions happen. I don't know how they happen. I've not the foggiest notion. I do not have an answer for anybody. But I know a solution for anybody who's suffering from alcoholism. And the solution is Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, as one of those people filled with, absolutely filled with resentments and anger and rage, and it was some years before I got around to doing that really good eighth step. And I had a lot of people on that eighth step, not the least of which was Dumb Denny. And then I, I drove up to New Jersey to see Dumb Denny, and, uh, and, uh, and I, the, and I figured out why I owed Denny an amends. You know, when you got a brother like Denny, it's hard to be in that family because Denny was such a winner. You know, he looked so good to me. He did everything once, and it was always the right thing. And, um, and so every chance I got, I would detract from Denny. Oh, if somebody would say around the family, and I could drop a little bad thing about Denny, I'd drop it, you know. I just sort of poison the atmosphere. So they would think maybe a little less of Denny. And maybe a little more of me, and that's why I owe him an amends. And, uh, and, and, and I got up to his house, and he looked at me, and, and uh, we began to talk, and his lovely wife, Jan, knew that this was something different and special. And I had never visited him at his home, and, uh, and uh, she excused herself and went to bed, and Danny and I talked, and I was finally able to say to him, you know, Danny, um, I'm here to make amends to you. I said, I've always admired you so much. I said, you know, you, you've always done things so right, and and I said, and, you know, I've been on the run, and I've been afraid, and, and uh, you know, I've been drunk, and, and I've really blown things. And I said, but you were always there doing the right thing at the right time. And I said, I said some bad things about you, and let me tell you that what I've done in the last six months is every chance I've had to say something positive, and there are a lot of them, I've taken it. And I'll continue to do that, and if I owe you any other amends, please let me know, and I'll gladly perform it. And he just started to laugh. He said, you know, the truth is, if you owe me an amends, then I owe you one. He said, all my life I've admired you. He said, I've always been afraid. He said, I was afraid to change majors, and I was afraid to change schools, and I was afraid to change wives. He said, I've always been afraid. And he said, and I watch you, and he said, Keith, you never gave a shit about anything. He said, so every chance I had to say something negative about you, I said it. And he said, there were a lot of chances. I said, I'm sure there were, Danny. We're good friends now. And, uh, you know, I put God on that A-step list. And, uh, and, uh, and I went down to, to a little retreat center on the eastern shore of Maryland. And, uh, and I, uh, uh, was looking for someone to talk to about this amends and, and, uh, I went into a chapel and I just sat down and I put on a three-piece suit and, and I sat down and I talked to God and uh, I said, remember me? I used to serve 545 Mass when nobody else wanted to get up and go do it. Remember me? And and, uh, and I really realized I was pleading my own case and I know with God I didn't have to plead my case because he was just waiting for me to come and I came and I talked to him. And you know, that scientific training I had, it wasn't scientific training. It was part of my spiritual illness, you see. Because I was called a skeptic. What I really was was frightened. I was frightened of the power that was in God. I was frightened of the power that religious people had. 
So I studied philosophy, and I studied theology, and I studied science, so that I could be a skeptic and a questioner and a criticizer, because I was afraid of the incredible power of believers. And I was one of those people when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous who was religiously anti-religious. And, uh, and I'd do things like not say the Lord's Prayer, I'd change the words, or I'd end it the way I wanted to end it. And, uh, and I realized that I owed spiritual people an amends. And so I went to this retreat center and I was looking around and there was a young theologian there, a priest, who would understand the deep significance of this incredibly humble act I was about to perform. And, you know, I could never find that guy. I could never, ever find him. But I kept going by this room and there was an old man sitting in there and he was sitting in a rocking chair with a, 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 a cover over, a blanket over his lap and he was reading his Bible and he was rocking in this chair. And it suddenly occurred to me that maybe God wanted me to talk to this man. So I went in and saw him, and his name is Father Jim. And I said, Father, may I have a few moments of your time, please? And he said, yes. And I sat down in a rocking chair across from him, and we both rocked and we talked. And I told him about me, and I told him how I'd criticized people like him, people who tried to do the right thing and people who tried to do God's will. And I laughed at him, and I criticized him, and I made jokes about him. And I called him stupid and naive. And and, then I, and I told him about my drinking, and I told him about going to 14th Street, and I told him about losing Kelly and Kimberly, and I told him about all those things. And I was about halfway through. This man put down his Bible, and he got up, and he began to cry, and he pulled me up, and he put his arms around me, and he began to pat me and rock me. And he said, son, son, stop. He said, it's not you who owe me an amends, I who owe you one. He said, I've been a priest for 50 years and I have cancer and I don't have long before I get to go home to my father. And he said, I was just sitting here praying and I was just saying, show me anything I've missed. Show me anything I've missed. And he said, you know, too many of the times during those 50 years, he said, I forgot what my higher power told me. He told me to leave the 99 sheep who I was comfortable with and who agreed with me and go after the one that was lost. He said, son, I'm sorry you had to be out there all alone. And I discovered something about the eighth step, and I discovered something about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is not a selfish program. This is a program for the world. These steps aren't for me. Steps are for everybody I ever run into. I have more than I ever knew existed. And it's because I've been willing to be wrong. You know, for many years in this program, I moved from relationship to relationship, trying to figure out what I was doing wrong. And after the end of one of those relationships in 1965, I can tell you, it was July the 5th, 1965, and another one had ended. And it was the same sort of pain and anguish. I had been just as selfish and self-centered and serious in that relationship as I had in all the other relationships I ever had. And, and I went back to my friend's house I was staying with. I was living in Alabama at the time, and I was moving back to North Carolina, and I stayed in my friend's house. And I couldn't sleep, so I got up, much like I did last night, and I prayed most of the night. I got on my knees, and I said, Father... I will never again, to the best of my knowledge, abuse another woman. I will never again be selfish in a relationship. I will be celibate, and I will seek nothing but your will. And if you want me to be single the rest of my life, I'll be single, but I'll do it with dignity. And, uh, and something happened to me that night, and I was, it was, something was lifted from me, and something was different. And that night I went to an AA meeting and, uh, and a lady who was a member of Al-Anon from about an hour and a half away brought a friend to that meeting because she had a bad back and couldn't drive and, and that's the night that I met Julia. And, uh, I loved her immediately. And I went to my sponsor and I said to him, I love this woman and I don't know anything about that. And he said, I said, you're happily married and you've been married a long time and I mean, you're really married. I mean, like you have one wife. You know, and you're really married. And, and would you teach me how to do that? And he said, I will. I will. And he taught me how to do it. Everything that I did, I did after I checked it out with him. 
And you know, and I tried to do it my way. There's something about me that wants to jump up front and gain control. And I said to him, I said, you know, Tom, I said, um, you know, I, I said, I, I don't think I, I'm ready for an exclusive relationship. He said, then don't get in it till you're ready for an exclusive relationship. And we talked about it. And Jerry said, I do want one. I'm ready. And I said, well, I'm not. I didn't date anybody, but I was not going to be in an exclusive relationship. And then one day it was time. And I said to Julia, could we have an exclusive relationship? And she said, I'd like that. And then uh, I told Tom, I said, you know, Julia and I, I think we might get married. And, and he said, well, that's nice. He said, when are you going to become engaged? And I said, well, that's sort of old stuff. I said, you know, they don't do that anymore. And he said, so Keith, it got to be old because uh, there's a reason for it. And, and uh, so I bought her a ring. And, and New Year's Eve, or Christmas Eve, before we went to Midnight Mass, uh, I had this speech all figured out, you know, and I had the ring in my pocket and everything, and uh, we were sitting in front of the fireplace, and the fire was going, and and, uh, and, and I couldn't do it, and uh, I couldn't couldn't begin, and, and Julie got up, she said, well, I want to, you know, check my makeup before we go to church, and so she went in, and she's standing in front of the mirror by the bathroom, and I ran in, and I and I pulled this ring out of the po- my pocket, and I said, would you please wear this, and I stuck it on the wrong finger. And, you know, Julia burst into tears and just fell into my arms. And, and you know, we sat in midnight mass, and both of us just bursting into tears. And, uh, and I never knew how much I wanted to be engaged till that moment. And you know, we were engaged for over a year. And I said to Tom, I said, you know, Tom, Julia's going to transfer over here, and, and she might as well do it now, and we can live together. And uh, Tom said, wait, Keith. He said, you know, he said, you've tried so hard to do this the way God would want you to do it. He said, why blow it now? He said, you know, lovers getting together is one thing. He said, but, he said, don't do that to your relationship. And I said, okay. And we didn't. And, and then we were married. And, and, and this married will be two years. And I can't tell you what it means to me. I will wake up at night and look over her, and I can't believe that she's my wife. I just can't, because of you. I never knew that it was possible to hold someone as more precious as each day went by. At this very moment, a man who's a prayer partner of mine is praying for me. He always prays for me when, when I'm speaking. And if Julia were at home and not with me, she would be praying for me right now. And she's the one, when the phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning, I've had enough. And I'll say, I don't want to talk to another drunk. I've had it. And she'll say, let's say a little prayer. And, and I'll get out there. I'll answer the phone. And while I talk, she'll pray. And if I don't have to go out and I hang up the phone, and then I get on my knees, and she gets out of bed and gets on her knees with me, and we pray. And then we get back in bed, and then I hold her, and I thank God that I am who I am. You know, if you're near here, I can't tell you how this thing works. I have no idea, and I have a feeling that if we talk or ask Liz or you or some of these people who've been around here long enough to get goofy in the head, that they could tell you they don't know how it works either. But it has something to do with the incredible power of God. It has something to do with love. You know, I stayed about eight years, and I left D.C., and I moved to Fayetteville, and Fayetteville's my home, and I love it. I belong there. I asked a man to sponsor me, because when he talked, I realized he was a man who belonged where he lived, and that's what I'd always wanted. And I really am. I'm... I'm, I'm I'm registered to vote. I vote on everything. I, 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 I vote on stuff. I don't even know what the issues are. I just, I, I know, and I just go and vote. I just go and I put my name down, and, and I tell them, oh, I'm Keith Lewis, and I live on Surrey uh, Road, and uh, and I vote, and, and I have a library card. My God, I got a library. I got it with me. If anybody wants to see, I'd be glad to show you. Yeah. You know, when I moved to Fairville, I was sitting out on a balcony one day, and um, my life was amazing. I had recently finished my ninth step and, and, uh, and I discovered this incredible God that had, was the God of my childhood in the church that I grew up in, much like the big book says a lot of us do. And uh, I was sitting out on a balcony and I was reading the big book and I was reading scripture, which I read every day. And 
was overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. And I said, why me, Father? Why have you picked me? And I thought about all the people I knew who caught up with that drink and who took it and who died and why I was alive and sober. I was overwhelmed and I began to cry and uh, and I said, why me? And I, I was reminded of my uh, poor ex-wife when I called her from that treatment center. And uh, I said it to me and she said, what do you want? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. And she said, no, shit. I said, why me? She said, why not you? If anybody deserves it, you do. She hung up the phone. And I said to my father that day, dearest father, why me? Why have you picked me? And he said, why not you, son? If anybody deserves it, you do. And that's what it means to be the child of a living God. I'm loved so much that he's forgotten it all. And when he sees me, he sees his perfect little child, living one day at a time, a happy, sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. God bless you. Thank you very much.